Hey, this is Duray. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam. Sam is back. Woo-hoo. Welcome, Sam. And then we're joined by Professor Sadia Hartman, who is at Columbia University and a 2019 MacArthur Fellow. She wrote Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. You know, the word for this week is that there's so much to explore. I recently traveled to Ghana, which was incredible. Sam just traveled, and we'd all been places. And one of the things about traveling abroad, it reminded me that there's so much of the world to see that if you book in advance, which I'm not very good at, you can actually travel way more inextensively than you used to be able to, which is so incredible. And it reminded me when I got back home that there's actually so much in the States that I haven't seen. There's so many states I've never been to. There's so many landmarks and cultural sites to see in the United States that I haven't seen. So my commitment to myself in 2020 is to just explore a little bit more. Explore in places that I just like haven't been, meeting new people, experiencing new things. Let's do it. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. Sam's back. Hey. Woo-woo. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. A couple of big things coming out of the sports world. First of all, the queen mother, the GOAT herself, the Serena Williams, has reclaimed another title. The first in about two years. Her first is a mother, so I hear. Uh, And she's donated her winnings to help fight the massive wildfires across Australia. Yeah, I mean, what's remarkable about Serena is that this is her 73rd title over the course of her career. And obviously, we know she has the 23 majors. And what's more remarkable is that she'd have far more than 73 wins if she decided to participate in more tournaments. But, you know, as her career has gotten on and as she's become a mother and runs a business and has a set of other priorities, or rather a growing set of priorities, she often saves herself for the larger tournaments, which means she's not competing as often. But, you know, I mean, she would clearly be in the hundreds if she decided to compete in all the different tournaments available. But there's so much we can say about Serena, but just the longevity of her career is just astonishing, right? That like, there are not many people in sports or in any facet of society who remain the best in their respective space for as long as she has not in television, music, sports. It's just one of those things. Part of what I'm reflecting on in 2020, one of my things is to really like not take things for granted. Things, you know, with my family and my kids and my partner, but also like I'm alive at the same time as Serena Williams. And I think it can be easy to take for granted what it means to like see this person do this thing that has never been done at the same time. And so it's an amazing thing that we get to watch Serena do what she's done over the last, what, two decades. At 38, uh, she has her 73rd career title. She became the third oldest woman to win a WTA tournament, just behind Billie Jean King, who's, who was 39, and Kamiko Date Crum, who was 38, and the first woman to win singles titles in four different decades. That is wild. Uh, speaking of Serena, it has been my dream for at least the last few days <laughs> that I get a Beyonce video with Beyonce and Serena dancing like they did in I Ain't Sorry, but with a new edition of Megan, I'll Need Your Tea and Crumpets, Markle, making a cameo in the video. Prince Harry can come in at Mug too, because listen, they said, um, we do not need your colonizers or your money. We are going to go do our own thing away from your racist press. We're going to make sure you see your grandson every little once in a while. But other than that, I really don't need you. And you know what? We're going to be just fine on our own. It was one of the most boss, legendary moves I've ever seen in my entire life. Shout out to black women <laughs> who change the game every time. They are so mad. <laughs> so mad. Did you see they took the um, wax figures down and they moved them? What? Yeah, Madam Two Sides took the, uh, took the figures down. The one in New York, they took them and put them in the A-list celebrity room and took them off of the royal display. Wow. And then the queen came back and was like, "Eh, we're still talking about it. And I was like, "Mm, that statement looks like it's already been discussed (laughs) and decided. So let me tell y'all, I'm not a huge palace intrigue person, but when it comes to the royal family... Boy, I'd be, I'd be looking at the gossip section like, wait, what happened? Like, wait, (laughs) (laughs) what did this? I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but like, I, I'm a huge fan, like many of us, of the crown. 
I've watched all the the joints, the the documentaries about Windsor and the the family, and I'm just you know my my emotions are being pulled in one direction. I'm like, oh poor Charles, and I'm like, oh dang, <laughs> I'm like, oh Elizabeth's so misunderstood. It's it's why, and then I'm like, oh no, colonialism. Anyway, there's the mix of emotion that I experience when it comes to the royal family. And so this was just like, this was wild. I mean, it, it is truly, I know so many people have said this, but like, I truly cannot wait for like season nine of The Crown. It is going to be bananas, right? Just like, right, right. Because like the Queen of England <laughs> found out the same time as we did from an Instagram post, right? Like they were like, all right, time to bounce. We're rolling. I don't know. Anyway, you know, and, and on a more serious note, like I applaud anyone who puts their family first and their well-being first. And Harry and Meghan were just like, in mad respect, you know, obviously we have incredible admiration for uh, for Meghan, but like, shout out to Harry, man, because he's just, he's like, nah, like the British press killed my mother and I'm not going to let them kill my wife. And, you know, he's he put his children first and his wife first and this is surely not the end of the story, but it is it is something, man. I've been I've been in it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these examples where you know the press will hate you if you stay, and they'll hate you if you leave, right? So they they started this, you know, saying all kinds of ridiculous and wild things about Harry and Meghan, especially about Meghan. And now that they've chosen to get out of that situation, they're criticizing them for choosing to leave, which doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, it's good on them for, for deciding to, to put themselves uh, and their family first and also defying the crown, which is, you know, I also watch all the seasons of the crown. And it's always one of those moments, you know, where somebody decides to defy the crown and it creates all of this. I don't know if it's palace intrigue or, or tension and, you know, you have people with all kinds of money and power trying to use that to force you to behave a certain way. And really going up against that shows shows real courage. I would say my favorite was that the commentary has been also this notion that Megan is making the crown out to be racist, that like she is tainting the royal family. And it's the like... The crown is racist? <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear colonialism is what made us clear that this was racism, right? The wealth of the crown is only wealthy because it stole from every other country. But it was like, how dare you ping racism on Meghan Markle? Like, that's not it. They are not why we think y'all are racist. I also just, I think as a woman, and a woman of color, this is a really important global lesson in knowing your worth. That all that glitters is not gold and that there is no amount of money or prestige that is worth your soul, that is worth your joy, that is worth your value as a human being. And sure, they won't have all of the pomp and circumstance, but it's not like they're about to be living in poverty. It's not like Megan didn't have a career before she came into this family. She just fell in love and that man happened to be a prince. And she said, we don't have to dictate our lives according to the traditions and standards that someone else has set for us if they do not work for us. And I just think that that's a really important lesson for people, period, to think about. Um, that you can turn down the very things that everyone tells you you should be grateful for if they're going to cost you your joy. And with that, let's talk about the news. All right. So my news is an article, an investigation that just came out in the New York Times, which looks into textbooks, school textbooks, particularly looking at history uh, and how those textbooks differ by state. So as you may know, some of the standard textbooks like McGraw-Hill and other companies that millions and millions of students across the country read for history, those textbooks originally start off uh, the same. They're originally as one sort of national template or blueprint uh, for the textbook that then goes through a series of revisions from a variety of stakeholders to take into account things like various state laws and requirements on what needs to be taught. Uh, they take into account the opinions and revisions from a state-appointed board of a variety of different people, but they're appointed by either Democratic or Republican administrations uh, to essentially mark up those textbooks and add or remove particular things. And then ultimately, they get released to the public 
And that results in a variety of different versions of the same textbook in different classrooms in different states across the country. And so the New York Times got copies of the history textbooks in California and in Texas and compared and contrasted the language that they used to describe and teach about particular issues. So uh, everything from uh, Reconstruction and white opposition to the civil rights movement to issues like gender equality and LGBT representation uh, to uh, the women's movement to economic inequality. Uh, and so what's fascinating about this analysis is they're able to pinpoint the very specific ways in which the texts, uh, depending on what state you're in, teach wildly different or emphasize wildly different aspects in some cases, just straight up ignore uh, really important pieces of history in ways that are sort of politically convenient uh, for Republicans and conservatives in places like Texas. Uh, so, for example, there is a section in the textbook where they go over the Bill of Rights. In California, it says that the right to bear arms uh, has been ruled by the Supreme Court that does not prevent Congress from regulating the interstate sale of weapons. So it is not an absolute right. Congress still has the power to regulate the right to bear arms. In the Texas version of the book, they straight up remove that, that section. So it says nothing about actually allowing Congress to regulate the ownership and use of guns. Similarly, around the section on the Harlem Renaissance, in the California version of the textbook, it does not include the following line. Um, it says in, in the Texas version that some people have dismissed the quality of literature produced during the period. So literally, they just added in a line in the Texas version uh, that there were haters at the time uh, who dismissed the quality of all of the art uh, and literature uh, and incredible culture that was produced during the Harlem Renaissance. So there are loads of examples, some which are you know more egregious than others when we talk about issues like race. Uh, in class and gender. Um, so, for example, the section on uh, white resistance to black progress during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the section in the California textbook notes that white flight from many American cities to American suburbs was driven by a desire to get away from more culturally diverse neighborhoods. That's what it says in the California version. In the Texas version, it just says, some people wish to escape the crime and congestion of the city. So literally, they're taking racist talking points about crime and inserting them into the history section about why white people fled the cities as more black people just happened uh, to move to those areas. This is really fascinating. There are loads of examples in here, which, you know, as somebody who went through the education system, went to public school, was taught by many of these books, yeah, I'm not surprised by this, but just seeing the specific examples highlighted and pulled out, I think speaks volumes to what kids are learning today and how that process is being affected by a tendency, particularly in Republican states, to ignore or sugarcoat uh, or whitewash history in ways that makes it difficult, uh, if not impossible, for students to actually be equipped with the knowledge they need to challenge structures of power and privilege. You know, Sam, when I first read this fascinating article, I sadly wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised for a lot of reasons. One, because my parents were really, really intentional about providing me the kind of historical lens that they knew I would not be provided in a school setting, even a private, highly academically rigorous uh, school setting, or perhaps especially in one of those settings since they were majority white. I wasn't surprised by this because as a former educator myself, I learned very quickly just how much Texas in particular has a controlling share and monopoly around the production of textbooks and can control very much what young people learn all across the country. I wasn't surprised by it because, frankly, the elementary reading textbook I had to teach from wasn't very good. It was influenced by a lot of people who didn't know my students or where they came from. And I'll never forget sitting in my African-American studies class uh, my senior year of high school. It was an elective. And we had merged with an American history class of juniors to hear from a guest lecturer. And that guest lecturer began talking about Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. And I and one other Black student were the only people who had ever heard of or read the book. And a white young woman raised her hand and she said that I thought 
that history was always about studying the perspective of people in power. And I've always thought about that quote because it's so clearly encapsulated how many people have been misdirected by learning a history that was always incomplete and it was incomplete on purpose. It also made me think of the fact that 59% of Republicans, according to Pew Research, have a negative view of higher education and they consider it to be harming America. I remember when the GOP in particular fought against the Common Core standards, trying to actually standardize learning so that some of the history that is perhaps being taught in these California textbooks is actually being taught across the country. And, you know, the the Texas Board of Education just voted to remove Hillary Clinton from the school curriculum as if she is not an actual, literal, important figure in history, no matter what you think about her. So sadly, this is a pattern. It's not a new pattern, most certainly, but it is a pattern that has continued to be emboldened in the last few years. And ultimately, this is about a fundamental disagreement about the purpose of education. It is not there to simply create robots or workers or to develop a level of ignorance that parades as patriotism. Education is and must always be about ensuring young people, no matter their background, can secure their own freedom. And there's no way to do that when children, irrespective of their background or culture, only learn half-truths and whole lies. So what's interesting about this is that Texas has a sort of disproportionate influence on the textbook industry because one in 10 public school students in the country go to public school in Texas. This is illuminating, Sam, and and I was really struck by it, not because I wasn't aware that Texas had its issues, but but because it was striking to see the side-by-sides and to see the way that they cut out. For example, like if you ever come hear me talk, you know, like the New Deal and racism that was embedded in the New Deal is, is this thing that I'm thinking about and talking about all the time. And so in the Texas book, they took out the sentences that discussed how after the war after the Depression, all of the benefits that were afforded to people across the country through Social Security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, all these things. In the California book, they talk about how Black folks were prevented through discrimination, state-sanctioned discrimination from having access to a lot of those benefits. And in the Texas book, they don't. And this is something you've heard us talk about, again, like a couple times on the podcast, but that is a, a very small thing. I think it was maybe one or two sentences, but it is so crucial for young people to understand that the bedrocks upon which this country was built, the thing that made it possible for millions of people across this country to buy homes, to go to college, to accumulate wealth that would last over the course of generations, the things that made it possible were free things. You know, it's interesting that we're having this conversation about like, you know, people giving away free college and free healthcare and free this and free that when like the most prosperous moments of upward mobility throughout this country's history have been the result of white people getting free things from the government and things being subsidized by the government. And so when you talk about that history, but don't talk about how black people weren't given access to those same things that were the catalyst for that intergenerational wealth and mobility, then you create a scenario in which a young person reads that book and they're like, well, everybody got access to Social Security or everybody got access to the GI Bill or everybody got access to, you know, buy a house in the suburbs. Like if you didn't take advantage of it, that's your fault. Right. And it is that those small moments of miseducation that contribute to a misunderstanding about why the landscape of inequality looks the way that it does today and makes it so that people think that. The reason one part of D.C. looks one way and one part of D.C. looks another way is because of the people in those communities rather than things that have been done to those communities generation after generation. So my news is actually from September 2019. It is still relevant now, even though I didn't see it then. Uh, What we know is that the Army has actually been pursuing a goal of growing a 500,000-member active duty force by the end of the decade. So in order to meet this goal, of course, they have annual recruitment and retention goals because it's not just enough to get people through the door. They want to make sure that people stick around through basic training and actually continue their enlistment. So they actually fell short of their annual goal in 2018. But in 2019, the Army surpassed their goal by recruiting a total of 68,000 soldiers, 68,000 for the year. 
They also said the retention is up too. So out of the 68,000, they hoped to retain about 50,000 through the end of basic training, and they ended up retaining about 51,000. So the army is feeling good about these numbers, and officers began asking questions about the enrollment boon, particularly because recruitment usually suffers when the economy is improving and unemployment is relatively low, as it has been for the last several years following Obama-era interventions. And it was actually pretty fascinating what uh, the officers found out. Um, There were a few reasons cited, including a shift away from TV marketing to social media and digital ads, probably unsurprising there. But in particular, officers found that the student loan crisis is actually a driving force. So the head of Army Recruiting Command, Major General Frank Muth, said that after visiting 40 recruiting stations last year and talking to a lot of people, the increase in enrollment had little to do with people signing up for the continuing and now potentially increasing Mideast wars, which apparently a lot of Army personnel had assumed was the real reason. Major General Muth estimated that the average existing debt of recruits is around $31,000, and there are plenty more who were enlisting so that they could avoid taking out student loans at all, either by taking advantage of free state college tuition that you get from most enlistment activities or other financial education benefits, or by leveraging the trade skill credentialing, which I didn't know about, that can happen uh, for certain industries and certain roles through an Army enlistment. So the Major General also reported that this included an increase in women and people of color enlisting, as you can probably imagine. And this was on my mind because obviously last week, Trump was sending thousands of troops off to a conflict that, let's be clear, he provoked. And many of us were discussing if the draft would actually return. Someone made the really provocative point that poverty and the inability to afford the basic building blocks of American life actually replaced the need for a draft. And I found that to be a really fascinating point, especially given these new numbers. As of Right now, the Army has about 478,000 active duty members, just shy of that 500,000 number. And with recruitment and retention seeming to improve, the circumstances and challenges of civilian life may actually continue to lead some people to feel like enlisting is their only choice. And that means that the Army will get ever closer to that $500,000 member goal long before the end of the decade. These, frankly, are the kinds of false choices that marginalization will create. And those are the kind of false choices choices that honestly trouble me very deeply. You know, this is something that affects me personally. You know, my little brother uh, is now at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, And the reason that, you know, he applied to a lot of schools, uh, he got into a number of schools that he really wanted to go to, but they all cost tens of thousands of dollars a year. They did not provide much, if any, financial aid. West Point offered uh, a full ride. And that was the reason why he decided to go to West Point. And then just seeing the way that they structure their program, right, to really lock you into the military. So it's not like you just go to the school for four years, you graduate, and then do whatever you want. You actually are required to do, I believe it's five years of military service after graduating. And if you quit, then you have to pay back the school $50,000 a year for every year that you went there. So they really lock you in at a very early age when you're sort of most vulnerable, trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of yourself financially, of your family financially. And then, you know, when you do that, um, like that is your life for the next decade, right? Is at the behest of the U.S. military and at a time when what the U.S. military is being used to do is highly suspect at best. This is sort of a microcosm of a, of a much broader issue that affects hundreds of thousands of people. But it's, it's yet another reason why we need to abolish student loan debt, uh, why we need to make college affordable uh, so that people have options so that they can sort of pursue their dreams and not have finances factor into decisions that can be life and death. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hey, Hotels.com here. Struggling to keep up with your toddler? We know a hotel that'll keep them entertained. Book family-friendly hotels with pools in the Hotels.com app to find your perfect somewhere. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. So for my news, uh, I want to talk about a really important report that was done by the Clarion Ledger and the Marshall Project down in Mississippi. And it found that in Mississippi, judges have sentenced hundreds of people a year to what they call restitution centers across the state, almost always ordering these folks to stay until they pay off court fees, fines, and restitution. The Flowood Restitution Center, for example, is a motel converted into a jail surrounded by razor wire, surrounded by truck stops, and an outlet mall. Here, people sleep in rooms of up to seven people per room, and they often endure strip searches for contraband at night when they return. The Mississippi Clearing Ledger, along with the Marshall Project, like I said, did this investigation and found that people at these centers didn't actually owe that much money. Half the people living at the centers had debts of less than $3,515, and one person owed just $656.50. All these folks are uh, nonviolent drug offenders. Um, I put that in air quotes, given the conversation we've had about, you know, the blurry line between violent and nonviolent offenders in the first place, but that's a conversation for another time. So the point is that they don't represent any sort of threat to public safety, but still on average spend nearly four months, on average, nearly four months, and sometimes up to five years 
at these centers. Uh, they're forced into low-wage, sometimes dangerous jobs like slaughtering chickens or gutting catfish at processing plants. Private citizens hire them to work as handymen and landscapers at their homes. And their average take-home pay is $6.76. And when they can't get jobs, sometimes for medical reasons, they sit in these centers and accrue a $330 a month room and board fine. And some of the centers don't offer programs to deal with addiction or for them to earn high school diplomas. Meanwhile, their costs continue to balloon. And because they have to pay for room and board and transportation to their jobs and medical care, they're often in a position where they're made to stay longer than they were originally sentenced to serve in these restitution centers. So what this is, is a debtor's prison, right? Like they essentially kidnap these folks and keep them in a motel turned pseudo prison that punishes the poorest residents of the poorest state in the country until they can pay this money back. But one of the worst parts is that it's not even bad enough that they keep you until you can pay the money back. It is that there's not at all any transparency about what the process of paying that money back looks like. And so people are staying in these places and don't have any sense of how far they have come or how close they are to to paying their money back. So for example, a guy named Daryl Bridges says he earned almost $2,000 working at Checkers during his stint at a Pascagoula restitution center in 2013, but the money was never applied to the $3,400 debt that he owed for an attempted robbery when he was 17. Uh, and he still doesn't know what has happened to that money. Or there's Gallia Mills, who needed to earn about $2,800 at her Sonic driving gig to get out of the Flowood Restitution Center, where she had been sent in 2018 for violating her probation for a drug possession charge. And while she was there, a guard stole $660 of her earnings, and she never got any of that back. And she said that not knowing when you're coming home is the worst part. And so all that's to say, you have to imagine that these people are, they don't have any money, they're forced to pay for their court fees. They are kept in hotels, motels, turned prisons until they're able to pay it back. There is no transparency about how close they are to paying back. Oftentimes, they are uh, made to stay there for even longer than is required uh, because they are not told how close they are to paying the money back from these jobs that earn barely six, seven dollars an hour in the first place. So, I wasn't necessarily familiar with restitution centers. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the way that poverty is criminalized in this country, but this took it to a level that I had not seen or been familiar with. You know, we would be closing all prisons and jails if they truly were only using the money allocated to them. If they weren't exploiting people endlessly through these crafty mechanisms, there's no way that they'd be sustainable. It's one of the reasons why when we look at sheriffs, that they have a vested interest in people being incarcerated because they get paid per pupil. And this is why people are against bail reform, not necessarily because they're afraid of public safety. That's just a myth. It is mostly because of it'll be a huge drop in revenue for prisons and jails if we don't incarcerate people while they wait for their trial. But what this made me think of was a 2015 study by the Brennan Center for Justice that showed that over 40 states charge some sort of room and board, some sort of pay-to-stay fee, which is wild. And there is a protester who was with us in the street in Ferguson who's incarcerated in Missouri we make sure that he has money every month, but we always have to make sure that we don't send too much money because if he receives a total of over $500 a month, then they actually take any excess for room and board, which is wild. I also didn't know that in California, the board costs vary because an inmate can offer to upgrade to a more comfortable jail for a different cost per day. And for people who are poor, uh, they just get a set fee, which is sort of wild. And in Missouri, which I'll just stay on because that was the site of the protest, the Missouri Incarceration Reimbursement Act is where most of this came from. And in Missouri, out of the 114 counties, only seven in fiscal year 2017 collected no money related to room and board, which is wild. So you get people who you've already incarcerated. And remember that all the research on incarceration shows that the cost of just one day of incarceration is pretty big. People lose their jobs. People lose access to resources just with one day of incarceration. And this all started in 1846, where there was a first correctional fee uh, when in Michigan they enacted legislation that authorized the counties to charge inmates for the cost of medical care. And then it just blossomed all across the country. So my news is uh, something that I had no clue was happening. Uh, we've talked before about some of the, the biggest mental health facilities in the country are prisons and jails and not hospitals, as most people believe. And the scary thing about that is that the people that run prisons and jails are not doctors. They are sheriffs. There's somebody, some law enforcement person is overseeing 
uh, what's happening inside of the the prison or jail. But what I didn't know is that uh, pharmaceutical companies are actually starting to market directly to sheriffs, to wardens, to people who manage prisons and jails. And what the article talks about is that as early as the 2000s, to help sort of offset costs, uh, some local officials in places like Washington and Ohio were starting to get free samples of antipsychotic medications from pharmaceutical companies. And that essentially led to pharmaceutical companies inviting non-medical professionals like sheriffs, wardens, those sort of people to medical conferences or like medicine pharmaceutical conferences or even holding those conferences specifically for people who manage the jail population because the jail population is a fixed population. People don't really have advocates, so you can dictate the care that they get. Uh, and it is a pretty huge population across the country. So things from free samples, they give lunch to prison doctors and jail doctors to learn about the medications. They give payments to physicians to promote certain medications. And what was really wild is that the article sort of details how some popular medicines have been used and introduced in prisons through deals with wardens and sheriffs. And the importance of that is that if you get somebody on like a detox medication, your specific medication, you sort of hook them for life. And if you have a market on it in a big jail, you will almost guarantee that the inmates, once they get released, will use this medicine for years to come, which will benefit you financially. And the article details some medicines where that happened, where like nobody's really taking the medicine introduced into the prison population, created the market where there were a set of people who had to use this for a long time, and there are your profits. Wild. So one of the things that was fascinating about reading both of the past news that we've talked about has been seeing how these exploitative aspects of the system are not directly limited to incarceration. So the restitution centers, for example, were people who were not technically imprisoned, but were nevertheless being forced to work in a particular context that they couldn't leave. So it was sort of a, a prison that wasn't being called a prison, um, but was created as sort of an alternative to prison for sort of low-level offenses. Even in this case with the medical situation, what we're seeing were stories in, in this article where folks were actually being diverted from prison, but as a requirement, a condition of being diverted from prison, they were required to be treated with some of these treatments that, you know, the medical industry was essentially selling to institutions. And so, you know, this just reminds me how the system of mass incarceration is often bigger than or broader than and more pernicious than what is happening in the context of jails and prisons. I mean, oftentimes, even when we talk about decarceration, which is happening to some extent, we're seeing a reduction in the prison population, uh, overall, a slight reduction in the jail population um, nationwide. But nevertheless, you're seeing many of these diversion efforts. So instead of sending people to prison, they are sending people to restitution centers or requiring people do community service and other types of labor for free or imposing extreme debts on people that ultimately trap them in the system, even if they are not immediately incarcerated. And now here, you know, being required to undergo certain treatments um, that may not be in people's best interest may actually result in addiction, but are being used for profit by large corporations uh, in coordination with institutions. So all of this is just a reminder that mass incarceration is often broader than specifically what's happening in jails and prisons, that it affects a much broader uh, sort of universe of people, and that some of the efforts to divert people from jails and prisons um, do not ultimately result in a sort of good outcome if they continue to be used to exploit people and trap them in these situations. That's the news. And now my conversation with Professor Sidia Hartman, whose text Wayward Lives primarily explores the lives of various Black women in Harlem and Philadelphia during the 1890s. I learned so much. Here we go. Professor Hartman, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's wonderful to be here. You know, there is this sentence in the Venus in Two Acts essay that I'll never forget. And it was my reminder of what the power of words can do. They're a couple, so I'm just going to say them because you're here. And I was like, wow, this is so, this is great. Um, I love this idea of, you wrote, hers is an untimely story told by a failed witness. Like the idea of a failed witness to me is just so, so interesting. But it was a sentence, how does one listen for the groans and cries, the undecipherable songs, the crackle of fire in the cane fields, the laments for the dead and the shouts of victory and then assign words to all of it. 
I just love that. And I was like, I can't believe we're going to speak today. So thank you for all of your work. And it's an honor to have you on the pod. No, thank you. Um, should I address that sentence? If you want to, I just had to say it to you because I was like, I love this. My way of working is about trying to attend to all of these moments we know are really significant and crucial, but that have either been underrepresented or ignored. So that sentence for me encapsulated the history of Black struggle against slavery from the barracoon and the hold of the ship to the cane fields of Haiti. And I wanted to capture the sonic texture of that. So then the question was like, oh, how do I translate from those, that sonic texture, those groans and cries into words and sentences and paragraphs? How did you get drawn to the excavation in some ways, I guess, or the archive? How did you get drawn to the archive as your professional work uh, centered around telling these stories or representing these stories of Blackness? How'd you get there? It started really early, maybe surprising, but, you know, when I was young, I used to love the music of Bob Marley and the Whalers. And at a certain point, I thought, oh, I too want to be a Whaler. I too want to offer testimony and witness to Black history and Black lives. But I wanted to offer that testimony, that witness in a way that was as moving as the music that would just hit you in your heart in the same way. So that necessitated working as a scholar in a different fashion. I have to imagine that in, in the process of unearthing stories that haven't been told or, or helping us to just extend narratives that haven't been extended for a host of reasons, that you've probably learned so much about the way that we tell stories about Blackness or just uh, so much about history. What are some things you've learned in this process? I think that the most critical thing for me in working with the archive or working with state documents is shifting the perspective because often, you know, they're the rich traces of these lives there, but the way those lives and experiences are framed deaden them or violate them. So figuring out a way to mine the archive, to mine those documents, but to break down the terms of order that govern the way Black lives appear in such confines. So I think that introducing a radically different kind of perspective and also challenging or trespassing that difference between the notion of the observer and the subject. So what does it mean to narrate with and alongside And I think we have really rich examples of this in the history of Black letters. The slave narrative is an important example of this. Even though slave narratives were written after people had escaped the condition of slavery, in recounting their stories, they attempted to tell those stories within the circle of their confinement, to tell those stories alongside other enslaved people, even as they were no longer in that condition. That was a kind of model for me and looking at someone like Frederick Douglass and the way he successively revised his life so that each time he wrote an autobiography, he was deeper and deeper in the context of that collectivity. That was a very important example for me. I wanted to ask you too, it is in this essay that you write, It is much too late for the accounts of death to prevent other deaths, and it is much too early for such scenes of death to halt other crimes. Uh, And then you go on to expound on that. It made me think, because so much of the work that we do as activists and organizers is sort of highlighting the violence that has happened to other people as both a reminder that we should live in a world where this violence doesn't happen and in the hopes that the attention that is brought to that can change the moods in ways that we ultimately change systems in ways that will ultimately change outcomes. Uh, and I say all that to say that, you know, what, what most people don't realize is that the police have actually killed more people since the protests, not less, which is something that humbles us every day in this work. But I'd love to know if you still believe that as strongly as you did when you wrote this essay. I mean, your antidote um, actually gives a lot of weight to that point. And I mean, I think that we see it repeatedly. We have, you know, the totally unequivocal example 
of a form of state violence documented, and yet it still fails to produce justice, right? So I think that thinking about our practice in this really broad and varied way, so it's not so much that we need to prove the violence and the injustices of the state. What happens if we just, you know, take that for granted and imagine how we respond to that, right? So I think that often there's an assumption that, well, if only people knew, if only people could see these examples of, you know, Black death and suffering, that they would act otherwise. And I think that the danger of that for me is that it sidesteps the very, very deep investment in white supremacy and how that investment organizes the terms of life in the U.S. and has for centuries. So what would it mean to imagine transforming the consciousness or the person who can just watch that specter of death indifferently or perhaps even experience a kind of enjoyment in the face of Black suffering. I mean, I think that that's the hard place that I address in that essay, and that's also the very difficult place that I begin in Scenes of Subjection. One of the reasons why I'm fascinated with your work in general is because as somebody who sort of lived through helping push this moment that we have right now on activism, I am fascinated with people who study Blackness and study Black struggle and So in this moment, we can think better about how to make decisions because we are actively making them. And when I read that, it was like, that resonated with me. I have to guard myself against a sense of defeatism, I guess is the word, or like a sense that we're sort of just doing this because this is the right thing to do, but winning probably isn't in the cards because that doesn't inspire me to do any more work. So I just want to know how you reconcile those, like an acknowledgement that uh, just these narratives alone won't do it, but it seems like we should still be telling these narratives because they do serve a purpose. I don't disagree with you. I think that the place where, you know, we should go sitting with that knowledge is not defeatism, but imagining more wildly, more radically, right? If in making a certain kind of legal case about injustice or about state violence fails to produce a particular set of results, then for me, that's an incitement to imagine an even more radical transformation of the social order. You know, Angela Davis has made a similar point around prison abolition. She said that, you know, basically, every attempt to reform the prison has only resulted in rationalizing its violence and helping the prison do the work that it does more efficiently. So we can't settle for a kind of reform movement then, right? It's about the vision of creating a society in which the prison itself is impossible. So that's what I would say to you. I mean, it's interesting because the language that you quoted also echoes Otaba Kuguano's 1787 anti-slavery polemic on the slave trade. And in 1787, Kuguano said that it was too late for descriptions of Black death to prevent other deaths, right? And what he proposed instead was this program for the radical transformation of British society, for the immediate abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, for development and the African coast. Basically, he he wrote a blueprint for social transformation. That was where the sense of, oh, a simple description of Black pain and suffering will not actually be effective. We've had proliferating descriptions of that. And what has that produced? So I think that the challenge is, what does it mean to struggle even when winning is not within the scope of things. I mean, you know, last week I was listening to Democracy Now! and a Chilean activist was speaking to Amy Goodman and uh, Amy asked her, you know, so what is it that you want? What are the demands? And she says, we want the end to everything that stands between us and living life. And I thought, wow, how brilliant that is. That's not a, a narrow set of demands that the state can hand over, but we want an end to an order that makes life impossible. So that's the vision that mobilizes me. That's what I have to have 
faith in. And I think that when we look back at Black struggle, people have always desired and imagined things that seemed unreasonable, that seemed wild, that didn't seem within reach. I mean, why would I enslaved ancestors ever believe that the very profitable institution of slavery would come to an end? They were deeply invested in that belief in freedom when no one else was. And so, so that's, I think that those are the kind of imaginings we need to cultivate. I love that. And this will be the last thing I quote from the piece. But when I'm fortunate to have people who write on the podcast, it's like, I want to reference the writing. Is that right before that you write, um, my account replicates the very order of violence that it writes against by placing yet another demand upon the girl by requiring that her life be made useful or instructive by finding in it a lesson for our future or a hope for history. And I had never uh, considered it in that way until I read this. And I was like, I think that's right. So, I mean, a million people have said this because this is a famous essay, but uh, it was my first time reading it. And I hadn't thought about the way, especially in this moment, when we think about the victims of police violence, that it really is another demand being placed on their lives every time we elevate this one case to be the case of the terror. I agree with you. And I think that those lives make a claim on us. And that claim is that, you know, we do the work of organizing and creating alternative institutions and imagining otherwise. I mean, most recently, I wrote another little polemic manifesto called The Plot of Her Undoing. And in that, there's a line that says, they don't say what they know. All things must change. All things must change. And I think that that's the demand that every man, woman, child who is brutally slain in the street, I mean, that's how we affect some redress. I mean, I I think that there's a difference between the way we witness and hold and mourn those lives. And I do think that there is definitely value in that. I think that there's a psychic and emotional need to do that work. So I'm not saying that there's nothing that is gained from that. It's just the the strategy of marshalling Black death as the primary strategy for making social change. I mean, we see it, the limits of that strategy, not only in the US, but certainly in Europe and in the Mediterranean, where literally Africans drown at sea without anyone intervening to help. And in fact, it's a crime to intervene (laughs) and to help them because they're illegal migrants. So we already have, you know, proliferating examples that suggest to me that we need to think and to write otherwise. And the work that we need to do is about imagining other forms of social organization, other arrangements. And for me, those other arrangements would be arrangements that would eradicate anti-Blackness and settler colonialism and heteropatriarchy and racial capitalism. All of those things which are causing the majority of the people on the planet to suffer and that are actually destroying the earth we inhabit. You know, we talk often about what it means to dream a bigger dream than what's in front of us and how hard that is for so many people because the tear in front of us is so great that people spend so much time withstanding it that they don't often feel the space to dream, you know? I agree. Um, And I think that that's why it's really important important to kind of marshal our collective resources and joy <laughs> so that we can do that, right? So that we can, you know, try to imagine now, well, how would we live in the society we want? What would that look like? How do we support one another in the impossible confines of our current order? We have nothing to lose, <laughs> in doing this. You know, there's only the possibility of freedom to be gained. What is it like to be a genius? For those listeners that don't know, uh, Professor Hartman is in the newest class of MacArthur geniuses. It is cool to us, the non-geniuses. We are like, wow, she's a genius. Uh, What is that like? If you could see me now, you would know that I'm very embarrassed and putting my head down (laughs) to hear you say that. (laughs) Um, 
What feels so wonderful about the MacArthur is that your peers nominate you, they support you, they write for you. So while I'm the named genius, it's also recognition of a particular intellectual project. So it feels like a win, not only for for me, but for all of those who are involved in this work. So that part feels really great. It also feels really liberating in the sense that I now have the time and the space to devote to my next book project. And I'm not a youngin, so I'm really happy that I'll have more time to actually begin to work on the range of projects that are before me. So that just feels incredible. And I'm honored to be in the brilliant company of the many classes of MacArthur's. I'm curious, because your work is so heavily focused on Blackness, either today or in the past, what is it like to have studied this work way before the protests in 2014 that sort of that shifted the conversation about race in the country in a really dramatic way and, and now to do it. And I ask because one of the interesting things that people didn't realize about us when we were in St. Louis, like Ferguson and St. Louis City, is that we actually had no clue the world was watching. So we knew we knew the region was watching for sure. It wasn't until the protest ended that we looked up and we're like, wow, like the world actually participated in this conversation about what was happening in this one small place. And I'm curious about what it was like to study this before everybody was talking about race. And now I feel like everything's about race and justice in a, in a way that's a good, mostly a good thing. But as you know, this was not the case more recently. So what has that been like? I mean, that's a really interesting and complicated question, because why is it in the U.S. a republic founded on like settler colonialism and racial slavery do we need to kind of keep discovering the truth of, you know, our nation's history and the way that history has so radically shaped our now? So in some sense, the disavowal, the forgetting, the unwillingness to know makes it difficult for those of us who are involved in intellectual work and political activism because the demand is always that you prove the case over and over and over and over and over again. Even when the numbers are there, the history's there, all the facts are on the table. I mean, I think unfortunately it takes the most, you know, brutal expression of white nationalism and neo-fascism for people to understand, oh my God, there's a problem. And just how quick the transition was from, you know, a talk of embracing a, a post-racial, you know, Obama nation to the reformation of, you know, this white order as an explicit and avowed political project. So I think in the long view, you understand that these cycles are recurrent. You understand what the structures are. For me, the Obama presidency was about a certain kind of politics of representation. We got to have a certain picture of what Reconstruction might look like without any of the material effects or benefits of Reconstruction at all. At least the first time around, there was actually a revolution of property, right? Property and slavery was abolished. There was an attempt to rewrite the constitutional order of the U.S. to make good Black freedom. And I think that what we were reminded of is, you know, that the face of change without deep structural transformation doesn't actually create any change. But at the same time, the example of the kind of current crisis and violation of the terms of law have made many people nostalgic for, you know, just kind of like the old days of political civility and rationality, even as that too was structured on these foundational forms of violence. Have you seen the university change at all? And I ask because there were a lot of things I didn't realize I didn't understand until I had to live through being sort of in the work of justice in the way that I am, is that I didn't realize that there are so many young people who their entire orientation to things that just happened five years ago is literally through the classroom, like through the university. Like they know me because they read an article or something because they were like in high school when the protest started, you know, so or they were in middle school or something. 
Uh, so I'm interested in like, have you seen your classroom or have you seen the university shift in any way in this moment where race is, you know, this is a moment that is both sort of post-protest in the way that it was in 2014, but also present Trump. And I'm interested in what you've seen that do, if anything, about the way the academy is discussing or engaging issues of race and justice. I mean, I think that for my students, undergraduates and graduate, that there's a desire to use the tools and resources that they have access to, to help produce alternative domains of study. I mean, I think that for me, one of the things that's, you know, so exciting about the Black Lives Matter movement has been how foundational theory and philosophy and criticism has been to the struggle. I mean, every movement (laughs) generates a syllabus, right? That's a model for me of the integration of theory and practice, right? I mean, it's about trying to create forms of decentered movement that don't replicate hierarchical modes of leadership that aren't heteropatriarchal, that aren't masculinist, that are linked with struggles around, you know, indigenous land rights or struggles in Palestine against occupation. So both with the younger activists as well as my students, they want to use what they know to actually make a difference in the world, right? So I'm teaching a class on pedagogy now, and students want to transform not only the university, but the school system generally. So I feel that they are imagining themselves as actors who can transform the world, and that feels exciting. In this conversation about Blackness, the conversation has reignited about sort of uh, the roots to Africa, the connection to Africa. I don't know if you saw on Twitter recently, there was a sort of big conversation about like, what is Black? And there were people in different parts of the world who were sort of saying that there is no Black American and that the true Black people are not here. And there was this whole conversation about like, what is Black and what does Blackness actually mean when we think about the global context? I say both of those things uh, just to ask, and people should just, you should read everything that Professor Hartman has written because it's great. Uh, But like, how do we understand the connection to Africa in this moment when we think about the Black American experience? Are there any contours that we should use to frame an understanding? There is a way that we can talk about Blackness in large terms, and that is less about identity then it is about a structural position. And that structural position might be described as a vulnerability to premature death by precarity. And I think that that's what Black thinkers like Du Bois or Biko or others have tried to do, that they've imagined Black struggle or Pan-Africanist struggle or leftist struggle by really trying to think about what constitutes that shared structural position. In a recent book called The Critique of Black Reason, Ashila Mbembe, you know, really building on the work around slavery, really, you know, building on Wilderson's work and a range of other people who are thinking about these issues of fungibility, has said that that position of fungibility is being universalized. And, and in fact, because of the extremity of violence under late capitalism, and that more and more people around the world are coming to inhabit the position of the Black. I mean, that's a really provocative proposition. But what I like about that is that it names that position primarily as a structural position. Du Bois said as much when he was asked to define who is the Negro, and he said, the one who's forced to ride in the Jim Crow car. So I think that those are ways that we can deal with the material contours of existence, which are different than the questions about like culture and identity. Um, because we know there's also been this debate about like, oh, can an African actor play an African American character, right? So there's also a kind of a struggle about identity. And I think that what you'll find should you go to Ghana is that there are these lines of connection and then there are the lines of dissonance, misunderstanding, failed connection, mistranslation, but it's all, you know, a dimension of the encounter. 
and necessary for us to think about the relations that we can forge and that we need to forge. You know, I took this class in, I went to Bowdoin and I took this class called Returning the Gaze about Black photography. And I'll never forget what was really powerful about it was I had never considered, I knew that like art was art, like paintings and things, I guess, as a high schooler. Uh, and I knew that they had, you know, resonance that was both political and cultural. I, I could say those things, but I had never, ever considered photographs in homes or like not in museums as things that could ever be politically relevant. They just like, uh, they were like photographs. And my grandfather had a camera, he took a gazillion photographs and it was, so we had a ton of photos, but it never resonated with me until this class that photography and blackness actually meant something deeper than just sort of an aesthetic or like a entertainment value. And I start there because a photo has been important to you and is the basis of one of your texts. And I want to know like how that process was of, of sort of exploring one picture as a or photo as a basis for a text helped you, if at all, think about the importance of these sort of things to the way that Black people have always understood their power or relationship in society. On the one hand, you're referring to the photograph of a young Black girl taken at the end of the 19th century in Philadelphia. And it's an, it's a photograph of a girl, and it's a, it's a nude, it's an odalisque. And that's where the book really began for me, because I really wanted to write a book about Black self-fashioning and the experience of freedom and beauty. But I encountered this photo that really spoke to the entanglement so clearly of slavery and freedom. But in encountering that photograph, I also looked at a range of, you know, vernacular photographs that were like your grandfather's photograph. And I mean, I would say a couple of things. I think one, claiming our beauty and our, as Barack would say, and our terribleness in a context in which we are devalued is such a radical, radical thing to do, right? There's an aesthetic inheritance that, you know, Zora Neale Hurston described this as the will to adornment, so that even if you went to the most, you know, impoverished cabins in the South, people would have images cut out from calendars and newspapers on their wall trying to beautify life. And for me, that's a really important strategy for not only surviving, but for affirming value and transforming it. And that's something that we've always done as Black folks. I mean, whether it's, you know, wearing one's hat on an angle, <laughs> having sagging pants, whatever, that so much of that will to adorn those statements about beauty and aesthetics are a way of saying we are here and that we love ourselves even if this world doesn't love us. And that's critical and that's fundamental. And I think in vernacular photographs, you see that where people are like wearing their Sunday best, posed with friends, trying to capture and preserve these moments of joy in their life, these moments when they are seemingly not conscripted by the terms of order. So that's why photographic archives are so important. It's how we gather with one another. Nicole Fleetwood has, you know, done all this work about prison photographs, not photographs taken of prisoners, but the photographs that circulate between prisoners and their families and the really important work of love and care and connection that's produced through that circulation of images or when families visit the prison, taking photographs with the, with the ones who love them. So I think photographs have a tremendous amount of agency and transformative capacity. Boom. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great speaking with you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Potsy of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. 